This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Manish Sabarwal, who is the chairman of Team Lease Services, and he's also on the board of the Reserve Bank of India and a Wharton alum. Uh, Manish, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you, Mukul. It's wonderful to be back. Great. So does India have a jobs problem or a wage problem? And why does that distinction matter? I, I think the diagnosis is very important because if you think the problem is jobs, you'll throw money from helicopters and bust the fisc. If you think the problem is wages, then you need to think about productivity. Um, I don't think India has a jobs problem. I think we have a wages problem. And most people who want a job have a job. They just don't have the wages they want. And our official unemployment rate of 4.9% is not a fudge. So that's why if you think the problem is jobs, you'll do that make-work program like NREGS, uh, which converted a high-growth, low-inflation economy into a low-growth, high-inflation economy between 2004 and 14. But if you think the problem is formalization, you will recognize that a 10-year plan is not 10 one-year plans, and you'll do formalization, industrialization, urbanization, financialization, and human capital. The structural reform of the Indian economy was long overdue. We were stuck in a low-level equilibrium. So I think the problem is wages. The only solution is um, productivity. Very often, uh, the number of formal jobs that India has tends to be underestimated. Uh, I wonder if what's a more realistic way of the formalization process that you just mentioned? I think, you know, the number that goes around in people's head is India is only is 90 percent informal employed. I think it's about 75 percent already. Mm -hmm. if you because if you take survey data and administrative data, you get different answers. But the most important thing is survey data is quite unreliable. We just, I just was part of a committee in India which looked at labor market data. So 27% of Indians say they work for an employer with more than nine employees. But only 1.5% of employers say they have more than nine employees. <laughs> so this is not a reconciliation problem. This is an existential sort of question. So if you say that we have to get our survey data better, let's look at social security. Let's look at health insurance. Let's look at government employment. And let's look at um, periodic pension payers. That number is about 100 to 125 million. So 20-25% of the labor force may be in the formal sector. How, how do, does the labor market need to be reformed to keep increasing the number of formal jobs in India? Well, I think you have to come at it from the demand side. India has 63 million enterprises. 12 million of them don't have an office. 12 million work from home. Only 8.5 million pay the mandatory um, indirect GST. Only 1.3 million pay the mandatory Social Security. Most tragically, there are only 19,000 companies in India with a paid-up capital of more than $1.5 million. Hmm. So 63 million enterprises means nothing if it translates to 19,000. So I think this, this sort of sense of humor about the rule of law, which has encouraged this massive informal sector, which doesn't pay the right wages, has to go. That's why you have to look at bankruptcy laws which have been passed in the last year, the GST which was passed a few months ago, the demonetization, which was done 12 months ago, the real estate law, which was passed, the ease of doing business, 30 jump rank, um, India's jumped 30 ranks last week. All of this is connected. I mean, people are not giving credit for having a plan, but um, the only way you would formalize India is by making regulatory arbitrage difficult. 
Now, continuing on the theme of your uh, perspective from your vantage point of being on the RBI board, uh, I, I read an article you wrote some time ago about demonetization, talking about how it was actually good for job creation. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? What's your well? Point of view I, I, I think that the informality of the Indian economy has been encouraged by various causes, mm -hmm. but the excess use of cash, corruption was an important part of that, and the lack of financialization. So now that we have one year after demonetization, we now have concluded, and we, we have sort of documentary um, evidence that there's $50 billion extra on a daily basis in the banking system. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a six multiplier, that could be $300 billion in new bank loans. We have about $50 billion of new financial assets. You know, gold imports are down 20%. So gold and real estate, which are really crappy sort of um, mm. in savings instruments from a political and an economic perspective, are down, and India has sort of traditionally saved that. The biggest upside of demonetization has been digitization. Mm. So there were 0.1 million transactions per month on our mobile platform, and now it's up to 73 million a month. So it's in, in one year, you've gone from 0.1 million to 73 million, and we're just getting started with that. But I think the biggest upside for demonetization has been sort of ending the sense of humor about the rule of law, that you can get away with cash. It doesn't matter how the law is written, how it's interpreted, practiced, and enforced matters. So I think if we sort of increase the costs of informality and reduce the costs of formality, that will put India on that trajectory for higher productivity, higher formal jobs, higher wages, and put poverty in the museum that it belongs. I, I don't think fiscal and monetary policy, there are limits to that. On, I mean, in political imagination, it's easier to think about fiscal policy or monetary policy. But I think structural reform was um, so overdue in India. And we've had a lot of disruption. And this is a lot of short-term pain, we will acknowledge. But I think it's worth the long-term gain. Yeah. Now, since you brought up demonetization uh, and, and, and uh, debate over it, uh, I remember a year ago, when uh, almost a year ago, when demonetization happened, uh, there was a piece in The Economist uh, that talked about, I think that it was titled The Dire Consequences of India's Demonetization Initiative, and they described it as a bad idea, badly executed. Uh, one year on, what is the feeling that you have and others in India have about demonetization? Are there lessons, are there things that could have been done differently? Yeah. I mean, Economist is not a great friend of India in the last few years. I don't think they have found anything right about what's going on in India, and, I'm, and I've sort of chatted with them about it. But my sense is that the Indian state's capability of execution is quite low. See, traditionally, the brain, in the, this brain was not connected to the backbone. That has been fixed. But now the backbones are not connected to the hands and legs. <laughs> so the last mile of the Indian state, whether it is the taxation system or the inspectors or the banks, have just human capital has diminished so much over the last 10 years. They have so underinvested in technology. And India's scale means their processes have not kept up. So if you traditionally take an operations view of any company, people, process and technology are all lacking in the Indian state. So my sense is the biggest lessons of demonetization are we need civil service reform. <laughs> we, 
We cannot have these permanent generalist civil service. They are unspecialized. They're not ready for India's scale, while the country is already moving faster than them. The private sector is moving faster than them. The, so the government has an execution deficit. The private sector has a trust deficit. And non-for-profits have a scale deficit. But the government execution deficit showed up in both the GST transition and the demonetization, which doesn't sort of um, attack the reasons that it should be done. It just tells us that we need to move much faster on civil service reform than we thought we did. What kind of uh, civil service reform is most uh, urgent in your view? Oh, just a fear of falling and a hope of rising. There is no performance management. Today, 98% of Indian civil servants are ranked outstanding. I mean, that's mathematically impossible for everybody to be above average. <laughs> so I think a punishment and reward, more specialization, younger um, people getting top jobs, you know, right now you can't be secretary to the government unless you're 58 years old. I think making secretaries at 45. Adopting the colonel threshold of the army, where if you're not shortlisted for promotion, you retire at 50. <laughs> Just, I think, a forced curve um, for you can't rank 98%. So RBI is the first public institution which has now adopted a forced curve. So it's 20, 20, 60. So you can't rank everybody up outstanding. So I think civil service reform is largely around performance management, especially and tenure. Uh, you know, the other thing one often hears in the context of demonetization is the impact it has had on digital payments. Uh, what's happening there and how do you see the future for digital payments in India? I mean, we all have China in we, right? I think what China has done in the last 10 years is remarkable and it would have been a huge gift to India's poor if we had figured that out. But because now of the jam trinity, the Jandhan millions of accounts which were opened up, Aadhaar, which is India's biometric program, and just mobile penetration now reaching almost 700 million. So I think India is finally getting to critical mass with the plumbing for digital payments. Demonetization obviously was a shock to the system of cash and a huge rocket for, for digitization. So I think that um, the real-time gross sort of settlement or the real-time sort of debit credit, which most advanced economies don't have, is possible because of biometrics, um, Aadhaar, and the mobile phone. So I think India can skip the learning, and I think that that will happen over the next sort of six months. So, I mean, I, I think Visa, MasterCard, and Discover will not be around five years from now in India oh, because we are moving payments to marginal cost. These guys have built their business on um, their marginal cost does not reflect the cost of a digital transaction. <laughs> and I think given our vision that poverty uh, payments is a very important part of reducing poverty, financial inclusion, financial literacy, and the stuff that you're doing at Knowledge at Wharton also, it's heavily needed in India. But the first stage of that is just bringing payments down to marginal cost. Right. So uh, the other aspect of digital currencies that people are talking about a lot is you know, the rise of cryptocurrencies. Yes. Uh, I wonder... From the RBI's perspective, how does the emergence of cryptocurrencies affect the central bank's ability to direct monetary policy? Does the RBI have a perspective on this? I think we're still forming the view on it. It's still early to say what is the impact of Bitcoin, especially after the last one week. If you followed, it's thirty percent down in the last since last Friday. So. Many of the people who were sort of extrapolating its growth as a store of value, something that can go down 30% is not going to work. 
<laughs> it can then be viewed as a commodity. It can be viewed as a speculative instrument. But if they were, there was a lot of marketing going on of Bitcoin as a store of value. Now, you can't have 30% down in a week for a store of value. So I think it's probably early for us. All of I think all of us recognize that cryptocurrencies matter or some form of digitization of currencies will happen. I guess we just don't know how. <laughs> right now. So it's probably from, a, you know, central banks must be conservative institutions. So I think the challenge is being open to innovation, competition, and the upsides of that while still maintaining sort of stability. So we are experimenting, um, thinking about our own cryptocurrency, which may or may not be the right thing to do. But I'd just say it's probably early to have pick winners or losers right now. So when you say uh, your own uh, view of cryptocurrency, are you thinking about something along the lines that's happening in Japan, where some of the leading Japanese yeah. banks have come together to create the J-Coin? Yes. Uh, which so we've already done that in, in, in cards. We've created Rupee, mm -hmm. which is a competition to Visa, and it's, but it's a purely domestic card with much lower costs of transactions, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and so, yes, it's the same way that Japan is thinking about it. But I think it's early to decide whether that's the right path to take. I think one big change in India over the last few years is we don't have to do it ourselves. But we also recognize you don't have to be Western to be modern. <laughs> I think we can figure out some things. And technology is home turf for India. So I think there's a lot of fintech for the world which is coming out of India, which hopefully we can use for India. Great. I want to end with a couple of questions about team leads. Uh, so I think when we spoke uh, a few years ago, uh, you had talked to the big challenge in India was not so much unemployment as employability. Uh, how has Teamly's, especially through our educational activities, progressed along these lines? And even to take the story further, you went public about a year ago. How, how have things uh, at uh, Teamly's been since then? Well, I mean, Teamly's is... We've hired somebody every five minutes for the last five years, but we've only hired 5% of the kids who came to us for a job. So that mm -hmm. sort of is not only bad business, it breaks my heart. And that's why we started India's first skill university. And two years ago is when it fully went live. And now we have 42,000 students because it prays to one God, which is employers. Mm -hmm. Only 5% of our kids are on campus. The balance are in apprenticeship or online. And only 5% do a degree, but 100% have the ability to take their three-month certificate as an opening balance for a two-year social and I think degrees matter. Uh, the option to go all the way to there, I mean, Wharton is a good place to be at. It's a better place to be from. The fundamental value is being from Wharton. So I think it's patronizing to say, because vocational training is usually for other people's children. It's not for our children, right? So we have to give people the option. So I think um, India has made a lot of progress in education and skills by allowing things like Team Skills University, which were not allowed a few years ago, to create the space for innovation and stuff like that. Team Lee's as a company, as a public company, everybody had scared me, you know, you'll become quarter to quarter, you'll start thinking short term. But it, so far, it's been an interesting experience with some upsides. Um, attraction, uh, it's much easier to attract talent as a listed company. It's much easier to do m and as a listed company. And most interestingly, it's much easier to hold my internal people accountable because right. the market tells us what our goals are and what we're being measured by as opposed to, for the last 15 years, just me crowing about we need to do 25% growth while now the market tells us they want 25% growth. So I think uh, being public has been an interesting experience. Um, experience. I, 
I mean, people will crib about being public, but I've never, and being big, but, you know, I've met, never met a small company that doesn't want to be big. <laughs> and I've never met a private company that someday doesn't want to be public if you want to really scale. And Teamly's has a real shot at being three things. We can be India's largest private sector employer, India's largest private university, and maybe even the world's largest staffing company by number of employees, right? ADECO only has 700,000 employees on a daily basis. If I have 5% of India's market, I'll be larger than that. It's <laughs> just because we have 1.3 billion people in India. I think, I think India already has more people than China. One last question. Uh, where do you think the biggest growth opportunities for team leads will come from in the next two years? And what are the biggest risks you see in, in, in following that strategy? Oh, we are a child of domestic consumption. The fastest growing segment of India's jobs are sales, customer service, and logistics. Mm -hmm. China's farm to non-farm transition happened to factories. Mm -hmm. India's farm to non-farm is happening to sales, <laughs> not even to services. It's just mm -hmm. domestic consumption is reaching critical mass. And mm -hmm. India doesn't have the same manufacturing opportunity that China had in 1978. They got a 30-year super cycle of global growth, global openness to trade, and global deconstruction of manufacturing supply chains. That doesn't mean we should give up on manufacturing, but I think services, sales, customer service is our biggest sort of um, focus. The biggest risks for us are just execution. I mean, my branding constraint is not market or product. It is just not being able to keep up with growth, right? You know, my favorite quote is an American politician called Mario Cuomo. He says, we politicians campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. Yeah. <laughs> we, entrepreneurs write our business plans in poetry, <laughs> and you execute them in prose. Our biggest finding constraint is prose. It is IT systems which scale up to handle 300,000 calls and emails a month, which we get. It is processes which allow huge amounts of money to come in and leave every month, and just the technology to keep up with that is going to be our challenge. Manish, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you, Mukul. Great to see you again. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.